Welcome to Deep North with your host, Rachel Nolan. Our guest today is Maya Schweitzer. Maya is one of the more interesting people I have found in recent years kicking around in Queensland public policy and in Queensland government. As you will hear in a second, first you'll realise one and then the other, uh, she's American and she's really smart. Maya has uh, come to Queensland with a PhD in geosciences from Oxford under her belt. Prior to that, she studied a master's at Caltech in the United States, where she considered lots of things, including the possible existence of life beyond Earth and what we learn from moon rocks. So after her PhD, rather than going down a sort of pure sciences path, she went into the corporate world initially as a consultant for McKinsey. She worked for Origin Energy for a period of time where she had some success in uh, reducing the costs around gas extraction in, in Australian gas fields. And then she arrived in Queensland in September of 2019 as the inaugural CEO of the Queensland government's clean energy company, uh, which was called Clean Co. Now, she is in between things right at the moment in that she has just left Clean Co in order to take up a really senior position with Fortescue Future Industries, the company of Australian billionaire Andrew Forrest. But she hasn't started that yet. So we have um, caught her in a little bit of uh, calm time, but we will in a second talk to Maya about what that new role is going to be. Andrew Forrest has announced a couple of things. He's announced that he wants to make his initial, his primary company, Fortescue Metals, one of the world's, or if not the world's first producer of green iron ore. And he's also made a really significant announcement of a billion dollar investment in Gladstone to produce the electrolyzers that are necessary to um, to make hydrogen. So they're his kind of big bets into the future and Maya is central to those things and we'll um, we'll come to to that broader topic in a second but um first of all welcome to deep north Maya Schweitzer it's really really lovely to see you here I want you to start I think you know before you can sort of talk about professional journey it's good to understand who the human being in front of you is so can you tell us a little bit about um growing up in the states what your family were like and why it was that you started down this sort of renewable energy path as opposed to deciding to be a pure scientist, which obviously to some extent was the path that you started on. Thank you. And it's fantastic uh, to be here. What a privilege to do something like this in a calm period. <laughs> um, um, I was born the daughter of two astronomers. And so I guess science is in my blood um, and curiosity about the world and indeed the universe is in my blood. Um, so the second of four daughters born in Washington, D.C., which is a great place to grow up as a science nerd. There's top quality museums all over the place. I was a really, really nerdy kid. There was, there was no sports, all science in my life. And I guess the other thing is that um, that curiosity about the world, I think relatively early on made me a bleeding greenie because I think it was relatively easy to see the world changing at that point. And I, I remember very strongly when I was probably nine or 10 years old, I was already in the environmental club. Um, but I saw I saw coverage on the news, as you did often in those days, of the Brazilian rainforest burning to mm. make more room to raise cows. Cattle. 
And uh, that was the beginning of my journey as a vegetarian, which I've been now for 30 odd years. Mm -hmm. um, but also just that acute awareness of, there, you know, there's just no way that's sustainable. There's no way that Earth can keep on tolerating that. And so I think that curiosity, that really um, expansive worldview came from my parents and their astronomy, their passion for astronomy. So they were academics in astronomy? Or they are. In universities? Yeah. And, you know, with that incredible privilege of knowing from when you're five years old what you want to do, they both had that. Wow. <laughs> Which I think is a common thing for astronomers, not yeah. so common for others of us. Yeah, nobody else gets that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, they were both research astronomers. My mom took 20 odd years out to raise four girls um, and then went back into it and wrote a book about one of the biggest telescopes in the world. Oh, wow. Um, so they're just, you know, it's, it's a deep passion for them. And I, I guess I was taught to search for that as well from the time I was little girl that's a wonderful gift and I think the Washington I hadn't realized you were you had grown up in Washington DC I've only been there once but I had a real sense um you mentioned the museums I had a real sense of Washington DC sort of being the Rome of the modern era and mm. a real sense that you know the National Mall surrounded by the the Smithsonian was kind of like the Roman Forum you know yes. that there's this real this is the center of things so um well, tell us about moon rocks. Is that, well, tell us. Uh, so the first time, um, for listeners, the, the first time I hosted Maya in my day job for a McKell Institute lunch, the advice that came from her office was don't introduce moon rocks um, when you are introducing her because it sends everybody off on a tangent and she's here to talk about clean co. Um, but we are not in such a, <laughs> such a constrained environment today. So... What are the chances of the existence of life beyond this place? I think it's pretty good. I think, you know, as as is often the case, in fact, it might even be a little bit of a theme for our, for our conversation today, the people tend to assume that everything looks the same as what we know, right? It's an incredibly strong bias in people. We love our pattern recognition. We like to, to see things that we can put into a box and name and classify. And I think, you know, there are, even in the great world of brains working on extraterrestrial life and science, um, or even the conditions for that life elsewhere around the universe, there's a tendency to think that it's going to look like us. And I, I suspect we're going to be dramatically proven wrong about mm. that. So yeah, my, my curiosity about my curiosity about the world, um, and probably also something about being a second child and wanting to forge my own path, made me really hungry for adventure. And one of the ways that I found that adventure is by working on testing basically NASA's Mars rover is actually what ended up being the Curiosity rover that's on mm -hmm. Mars now. This is a while back. Um, testing it in extreme environments on Earth to see whether the instrumentation suite and even the way that the rover drivers operate the rover are appropriate to do scientific experimentation on on Mars. Um, so that was that where did, was where did you go? Pretty cool. Um, we went to I think four or five years in a row. We went to Svalbard, which is an archipelago about a thousand kilometers north of Norway, right in right at the oh, polar wow. circle. Pretty cool. Yeah. So so somebody had discovered basically that one of my advisors had discovered that there were these volcanic rocks there that had little you know, as basalt does, has little bubbles in it. In the bubbles were carbonate minerals that were virtually identical to minerals that have been found in a Martian meteorite. Oh, so wow. So it's even more exotic than moon rocks. It's actually yeah, Martian rocks. Moon rocks were nothing. Um, Cut and, them and aside, so, we're in Norwegian rocks now. <laughs> that's right. Um, and, and so, you know, we were really curious about what, how does that mineral form? Because if we can figure out how it formed here, then we can extrapolate to what the environment on Mars might have been like. Mm -hmm. And of course, the, the very, very big question was, 
does it require life to form? Is this mm. something that bacteria or some other life form has to have a, a hand in producing? But it's actually incredibly difficult to prove life was involved. There's there's so many things where Earth um, Earth environments at least will trick you, and and it will look like something that life has made. It'll even look like a fossil. But, oh wow! But it's very hard to be very sure. So uh, so in the end, my um my PhD was actually about disproving, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which didn't right. make me very popular, but um, about disproving that some quite famous little teeny fossils from a couple billion years ago on Earth are actually not conclusively fossils. Wow! So that was your that was the PhD because you got a scholarship, didn't you, from your master's studies Mm -hmm. at Caltech, went to Oxford, undertook this research, disproved the hypothesis, I imagine, as much as it could could be disproven. (laughs) That's right. That's right. As as sure as you can ever be, you know, you just propose Mm. a stronger hypothesis. That's how science works. That's right. Exactly. But it wasn't, it was, you know, it was a time of incredible adventure, just getting to go to places like Svalbard, Kamchatka, you know, the inhospitable places on Earth tend to be great analogies for other planets. Yeah, so, sure. so you really, you really get to to have some adventures and fight off polar bears with Mausers and that kind of thing. <laughs> so, finished your PhD, what I imagine, sort of ten or more years ago. Yes, yeah. And didn't do a postdoc. Became a McKinsey consultant out of <laughs> London, as you do. Yep, exactly. So, what was that always a clear i mean you talked about your your really strong interest in environmental issues mm. arising from your interest and your family's interest in science is that why or i mean what why did, uh, why did you sort of go down a, a corporate and initially consulting path instead of being a practicing science scientist as your parents had been yeah you know if gosh if only i'd been that far sighted back then <laughs> <laughs> you know it was it was simple curiosity it was you know, if I'm honest, I think it was two things. One is I didn't actually feel as much as I loved that adventure and just, you know, just had such an incredible time in academia. I didn't feel that the filings aligning to the magnet that my parents had felt about astronomy. And I think I really had a complex about that. I was like, well, if it hasn't struck me by now, then you know, surely mm-hmm. someone else should be doing this, not me. And the other was curiosity. I think, you know, growing up in that kind of academic household, growing up around Washington, D.C., which is, you know, super intellectual. We ended up moving to California later, but that wasn't until I was a teenager. You know, what do like 99% of people do? They do... Who knows? Work, right? <laughs> <laughs> they, do, they do something related to business, right? Yeah, this is no. how the world goes around. And, and literally up until that point, I had not even read a newspaper. I mean, we're, we were so, were so academically sheltered. And so... I was just, yeah, I was really curious, what what do people actually do? So I thought, uh, I talked to some friends, my, my best friend from childhood said, you know, there are these firms that hire people no matter what your background is. <laughs> and McKinsey is one of them, you know, looks looks for a diverse, a diverse kind of intake. And so I threw my hat in the ring just in case and uh, thought this will be a year-long experiment. I thought I didn't like working with other people. And all kinds of misconceptions. I thought it was going to be like uh, like The Apprentice all the time, people backstabbing <laughs> and all that stuff. And you know, it turns out I really did like working with people. I really did like working on real world, world problems, which is a theme from geology. Of course, geology is an incredibly applied science. You've got chemistry, you've got physics, you've got biology, but it all kind of comes together in in one place. And you know, business is the same. And actually, some of the intellectual challenges are probably every bit as great as some of the frontiers of science. Mm. Um, and there was still that adventure component. Well, and there's as a whole well. sort of human element to exactly you know, real world problems. I mean, you said a minute ago you made that point about um, you know it's very hard for even the most intellectually curious people to 
overcome that sort of replication bias, that sense that what we will find in future is really a lot like what we know now. And of course, you know, there are all of those sort of human biases that, you know, real world problems or business problems, but it's not that we don't know where we need to go, but there's the infinite added complexity of getting the people to go there. Yes, indeed. Um, And in that sense, I think, (laughs) you know, your interest is in business challenges. My experience is in political challenges, but that whole added complexity of one, you've got to work out the answer and Mm. two, you've got to work out how that answer will be achieved. How to bring everyone along. Yeah, is undoubtedly um, an intellectually stimulating endeavour. So I'm going to kind of skip ahead a bit, but, you know, fill in as much as, as you like along the way. Um, you're a long way from Washington, D.C. <laughs> so through, tell us about the process of coming to Australia. Why did you come? And, you know, what's, what's been your experience? Yeah, it was, it's funny. Again, one of these, you know, one of these um, myths maybe I have about myself, I still, I still remember being even younger, probably six or seven years old, first time we were learning about the continents on Earth. And, you know, you've got all the other continents with the population, the land area, all of this stuff. And you get to Australia and you see the population density and there's basically nobody here, right, on the across Don't the whole like continent. <laughs> <laughs> you forget that sitting here in yeah. Brisbane, but of course, you know, there's this vast expanse out there. And it just drew me. I knew one day I was going to end up either in Alaska, which of course within the mm-hmm. 50 states within the U.S. had shown up for the same reasons, or Australia. Um, and, so, and so I built up this mythology about Australia across my whole life. So fast forward... Uh, Actually, the first trip I took here was to collect some of those fossils oh, right. in the Pilbara. Yep, when I was still at Caltech, and then I had a chance to come down and work from Perth, actually, on a McKinsey project. And then, you know, that kind of made it a little bit more real, I guess, brought the myth to life. But we, my partner, was with me by then, uh, Simon, uh, who's German. We met at McKinsey, and we were traveling around the world together doing various projects. And it just, it was just so friendly and no nonsense. You know, I think we we were living in London at the time. Um, London is a phenomenal city for anyone who's passionate about the arts, which I am, you know, there's just, gosh, it's all <laughs> how do you there? take it all in, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's, there's more than there's time to absorb, um, even if that was your full-time, your full-time job. But there's just a, a standoffishness or a cliqueiness that, that we found really difficult to break into in London, let alone the weather. Um, and, so, and so when opportunities came up in Australia, we always looked at them really seriously. Um, and so I actually came down to work with Origin. It was meant to be a four-week project. And then I was meant to go back, you know, jet back off to the, to the UK to serve another client. But we just, we just fell in love. We fell in love with Brisbane and, and the lifestyle here. Um, I was working with um, a lady at Origin named Felicity Underhill. She was my top client, and uh, she's actually going to be leading the other half of the country with Fortescue Future Industries oh, with wow. me shortly. Oh, that's a lovely connection. Um, and so, you know, it was one of those things where, gosh, if, if this place is good enough for her, it's good enough for me. Yeah. Um, really an exceptional person. So, yeah, so we kind of we kind of slid into it. Didn't, didn't expect it to happen, and then... Um, I got the offer to join Origin and it became a, a longer term thing. But isn't that a thing about life that, you know, you say you'd had a sense of it when, a sense of Australia when you were a kid and then, you know, kind of one thing leads to another and, and the opportunity arises. And I do think there's sort of, that's kind of so often, certainly in my experience, mm. how, how life works, that the, the seeds of the idea are there and they, they sort of take root over over time. And sometimes you're not even really conscious of those seeds being planted. Um, I do like your observation about Australia being 
empty. Um, <laughs> in my view, the greatest Australian Prime Minister has this um, wonderful expression about Australia and he, he says, um, well, when they were handing out continents, not many countries got one. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic, you know, that, that idea that you know, we're the only country that's, that's it. got its own continent. <laughs> so both he and you are um, onto that. <laughs> so, look, you've been in Australia with Origin for a, a period of time, working in gas, you know, finding a, a close colleague, and then you landed your first CEO role with CleanCo. Now, most listeners will know this I'm a, and you know this, um, I'm a former Queensland finance minister, so I have been a shareholding minister for the Queensland government's energy corporations. But the background to CleanCo is essentially that there were two government-owned energy corporations and the ACCC told the government that there had to be three for competition reasons. So there's been a bit of, it's been actually quite a bit of hype around the creation of CleanCo, but that was the sort of primary driver and when the government had to set up a third the atmosphere of the time being what it is they made a decision to consolidate what really quite limited renewable energy resources the Queensland government owned into clean co and to make that in a sense the um uh or potential to give it the potential to be the most entrepreneurial of the government-owned energy corporations so you came along as the founding CEO to a company that had much hyped but in fact quite piddling renewable energy generators and a pretty large mandate for growth in the state's renewables sector. Yes. Um, you spent two or a bit over two years doing the job. So tell us about the experience and tell us about kind of how you set about going about it and indeed what you did. <laughs> what a fabulous adventure um, that that was. I think, you know, the courage and foresight to set up something like CleanCo really is significant. You know, I think it, it would have been easy to take a grab bag of assets by some other logic, by geography or whatever else, um, and put them together to create that third generator. But, but CleanCo was created with you know, the most flexible generation assets that the state has. And, and why that matters is the more that we have sun and wind coming onto the grid, solar and wind power coming onto the grid, the more that we need assets that can respond quickly and balance. And it's, and it's literally when a cloud passes across the sun or, or you've got, you know, a couple hours of cloud cover coming to pass over the sun, what do you do? You need something that can respond, turn on quickly and fill the gap, keep the lights on. And so we were, you know, CleanCo was created with exactly that set of assets. Um, and that's, that's really powerful because it allows us to build a, a portfolio that can guarantee 24-7 power. And I guess I wasn't looking for a gig like that, if I'm totally honest. <laughs> I wasn't looking for anything, actually. I was having a year off. But I think the, the power of the concept that you could take these low emissions, and I should hasten to add there was one, there's one very efficient gas plant in there, so it's not fully renewable. Yeah. But to take those low emissions assets, pair them with solar and wind power, and sell that to you know very sophisticated large customers like BHP, the fact that CleanCo's whole proposition was to do that at a cost that was competitive with other sources of power, that was just such a fundamental shift 
that it was irresistible, yeah. <laughs> um, even though it's, you know, as much terrified as excited, which is a, which is kind of my perfect blend going into a new role, but was really, you know, if, if we could prove that that turning point, that turning point where, you know, the, the days of subsidies being required to make solar and wind work are far behind us, but the proof point that you can actually have 24 seven power and most of it renewable, you know, 90 or 95% lower emissions than the grid, that, you know, that's an economic argument that no one can overturn. Um, and so that's really what drew me to it is, is the potential to do that, the potential to not just talk about it, but prove that it's possible, sell it on, you know, get the awareness and coverage mm-hmm. of that um, so that we started shifting mindsets about what renewables really are. So I think, you know, overall, I came in knowing that it was um, a massive challenge <laughs> to do that. And and especially, you know, that that thing of, the future looks different from the past. That thing of the tipping point. I think it's, there's a there's a really powerful tipping point in there. But humans are very very bad at understanding the full implications of tipping points mm. generally, and how and how they can mean that something that seems like it's been changing really 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 slowly is now going to accelerate significantly. And then of course you know things like Biden getting elected and and the focus that's been on COP26 starting yesterday, mm. you know have made it seem a little bit more obvious that that's what's going to happen. But I think you know a couple a couple of years ago it wasn't that obvious. Yeah. So I think you know the experience was phenomenal. I think you know because it was um, it was such an a courageous thing to do. Clinco managed to attract some really exceptional people. Mm-hmm. And so we rose, we rose to the challenge. And I, I really take no credit for that. I, I think, you know, the, the team, um, the team that we were able to put together really, you know, doubled the portfolio in a couple of years, brought on another gigawatt of new renewable energy, really raised the profile of Clinco. So, you know, we're still, we're still the little kids on the block, but people mm-hmm. have heard of us. And really, I think, started to influence the overall dialogue, the optimism about actually the the future that Queensland could have in a decarbonized world. Um, and we're, of course, only one one little figment of that, but but it's a big shift to, to shift slowly. And so I think anything that helps push us towards optimism as opposed to fear about the future is valuable. So, Queensland, so the Queensland government has, well, look, I don't really need to contextualise it. We've been in this unmissable, difficult debate in Australia about 2030 and ultimately 2050 targets in which nationally we have agreed to a poorly fleshed out, but nonetheless we have one, net zero by 2050 target, Um, but we have failed to agree as a nation to an extension of our 2030 target beyond the Kyoto target of reducing, gosh, it's so technical, reducing um, our emissions levels by 26 to 28% from what they were back in 2005. So all preamble. Queensland has two significant 2030 targets. One of them is that we will reduce the state's emissions by 30% by 2030. And the other, and they do sit together, is that we will have 50% renewable energy generation into our state electricity grid by that year, 2030. Now, the analysis the McKellen Institute has done about the second of those, the 50% renewable energy target, really shows that that's pretty damn hard to get to for the really very simple reason that Queensland's, despite the good work of Clean Co in the last couple of years, um, most, the vast majority, kind of 75 80% of Queensland's power continues to come from coal-fired generation. And the state owns a fleet of fairly new 
and very robust coal-fired power stations in Biloela, Kingaroy, up in Stanwell, which, unless they're shut down prematurely, are going to power on right into the 2030s and for some of them through to the 2040s. Uh, And my simple question is, do you think that those targets can be achieved? And if so, how? (laughs) I absolutely believe that they will, not, not only that they can be achieved, but that we will achieve them as a state. I mean, I think I'd say, I'd say a few things about how and, and why I'm so optimistic about it. In fact, I think we'll probably beat them. But I think maybe a couple a couple of things. First is it kind of goes back to that point of of expecting the future to look like the past or look, you know, expecting things that we haven't met yet to look like things that we have. I think it's important that we're honest about our base case. And that's not just for Queensland, that's for all of Australia. You know, 95% of the jobs that are related to carbon intensive industries and I immediately go to jobs because jobs is is what people you know, talk about. <laughs> is what people talk That's about. The currency. <laughs> That's the, that is the currency, um, and it is. I think you know. Just to be clear, we can come back to the you know the, the technical constraints, and and there's still, there still are challenges ahead. Absolutely, to go through the the kind of economic transformation that we need to go through. But ultimately, I believe the rate limiting step is not technology. It's fear over losing jobs, and it's mm. it's fear over what the future might hold. To which the only antidote is specificity and clarity and optimism about what the future will hold. You know, credible, credible optimism. So I think I think it's important that we're honest with ourselves that 95% of the jobs that are in coal mining, coal power generation, even you know, farming, especially meat farming, those will be decided by countries other than Australia. Yeah. And those countries are making their commitments right now. You know, they're literally well, we holding so. speeches. We'll, we'll, we'll listen <laughs> to the news in the morning. <laughs> India, India by 2070, you know. Yeah. And so I think it's important that we are truthful about the base case and truthful about the counterfactual, which is that this this is what's going to happen. There's a long, slow decline ahead of us, right? And that's going to be painful. Um, and it's going to, you know, could take two or three decades. That doesn't mean you can be complacent about it. To replace a whole economy takes a bit of work <laughs> um, to, grow, to grow the new stuff. Mm. And so I think it's really important to be honest about our base case. And I think that actually will become the driving force for the economic transformation, because the reality is we are incredibly well positioned to succeed in a decarbonized world. It's, you know, you can look around elsewhere and where the sun don't shine. Well, the, where the sun don't shine. And it's not even just, we have great sunshine. We have great wind. We also have fantastic mineral resources mm. and, and ones that will become only more important as the world decarbonizes. So just as coal becomes less and less relevant. And again, when I say that, I'm not saying that's happening tomorrow, but it will happen over the next two or three decades, right? We are just so incredibly lucky that we've kind of got this bullseye of potential economy replacements, you know? Mm. Um, And so I think that will be driven by our desire to stay relevant in and indeed to compete in a decarbonizing world. That will ultimately be what drives the decarbonization of our electricity sector, but also every other sector of our economy, is we're going to want that to, you know, to remain relevant, let alone the fact that we've just won the 2032 Olympics, go Queensland, go Brisbane. <laughs> and, and there comes a commitment with that, that they are carbon negative. So they actually remove more carbon than they put into the, into the world. And so, you know, we're, we're going to have to square that circle at some point. And of course, the good news, as you, as you know very well, is that we can do that without breaking the economy. You know, the very proof point that CleanCo offered is what shows that it's actually economically beneficial to decarbonize, especially in the power sector, where we already know that water, wind and sun are cheaper than coal in the long run. So I know we will hit those targets. 
not only is it feasible, it's actually economically beneficial and will be driven to do that by, you know, wanting to preserve the value of our export economy. Interesting. I, look, obviously, I don't, you know, I don't disagree with you. Um, you do, you know, you make the point that the work that you did at Clean Co was to prove the commerciality of large-scale renewable energy contracts to firms like BHP, um, which do need a consistent supply of energy. And you make the point that um, the political discussion kind of necessarily, that the, I, I agree with your, your assessment that one of the primary or perhaps, perhaps the major barrier is a reluctance to get into the discussion about jobs as opposed to there being a genuine technical hurdle. And the thing that comes to my mind when you tell that story is quite simply where I'm from. You know, as you know, and I think as listeners know, I'm from Ipswich. It used to produce all of Queensland's coal and it used to produce a great deal of Queensland's electricity. But that ceased to be the case really through the 1970s and the 1980s. I spent more than a decade as the member for Ipswich, during which time I door-knocked one coal miner ever <laughs> because through the 70s and the 80s, Queensland's coal industry shifted from Ipswich to the Bowen Basin for reasons of, uh, you know, not of public policy but of simple economics, although the government helped it along by um, building a rail network in central Queensland for the export of that coal. And Ipswich is bigger and stronger and more economically vibrant than it ever was before. So one of the things that kind of surprises me to some extent in this debate, you know, when we talk about the necessary transition for the coal industry, Australians are sort of prone to uh, point to the rural valley in Germany as this mm. um, example of how a transition has successfully been made with the imposition of sort of strong and thoughtful government policy. In fact, you know, that happened 40 kilometres from the CBD of Brisbane. And certainly, you know, people in Ipswich were better positioned to get a new job than people in Moranbar. But, you know, it's not that economic transitions don't take place and haven't taken place you know, really quite successfully mm. beneath our very noses. Anyway, um, soliloquy from me. This is um, <laughs> this is an interview well, with you. But you know, but you know, there's there is um, there's something, and I say this with love and as an Australian now. But there is something really about not even just Australia, but about Queensland in particular that it has to have happened here for us to believe it, right? And so I think that example is incredibly powerful because. The German example is held up all the time. There are examples from Spain. There are, you know, examples of what not to do from various American mm. um, coal, coal basins. West Virginia was always poor. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Well, and, and there's a mythology about them, but I think having the example on our doorstep is incredibly powerful. And that's that's why I was so excited about, you know, Clean Coast potential is it doesn't matter if someone's done this in Tennessee. It matters that someone's done this mm. in Queensland and we can see the, the evidence right there. So I think, te you know, developing that into a case study that says, well, here's actually why it worked. Here's why there were economic opportunities for those people. Mm. Here's how retraining worked if it happened, I think is is so much more powerful than referring to yeah. <laughs> referring to the Germans. Yeah, a place where yep. nobody's ever sort of yep. you know, been to or heard of. Yes. Um, look, it just amazes me that no one talks about it. You know, mm. we sort of talk about the difficulties of the hunter and we talk about difficult politics of a series of central Queensland seats. But 
we don't talk about a dead set successful transition. Um, I mean, look, it's not been entirely smooth sailing and indeed the last person I interviewed for the podcast was Lech Blaine um, who writes quite extensively about issues close to my heart about the sort of you know, the, the difficult cultural elements of making that transition and the loss of class identity um, or working class identity and, you know, quite frankly, the loss of male working class identity mm. that goes with that transition. So, you know, it's not that this is a seamless mm-hmm. thing by any stretch of the imagination, but it is the case that economically... And indeed socially, you know, Ipswich is right here and did make that very significant transition to be a better and more interesting place than mm. it ever was before. But, um, look, I have a shocking tendency to make every conversation about Ipswich. Um, <laughs> so I will um, I'll endeavour to stop and we'll go back to... Um, <laughs> We'll go back to talking about you. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, but what's clear in the way that you talk about it, is, and, and I, I think actually this is the kind of the key to unlock it all, is the respect with which you're dealing with the individuals, right? And the empathy that you're bringing to the drivers that those that, you know, have this huge impact on people's lives and their families and their self-worth and all of these things. And I think that's the lens that we've got to bring to this. You know, when, when I've gone to Gladstone a few times over the last couple of years, one, it's markedly different than Gladstone, you know, four or five or six years ago um, in terms of the acceptance that this transformation, this, you know, basically wholesale replacement of our economy needs to occur over the next couple of decades. Um, and appetite to get stuck into it, curiosity about it, entrepreneurship, you know, all of all of those elements that we'll need. But I think they're just I think they're just looking for a bit of respect and a bit of transparency, you know, a bit of um Yes, our economy so far has been built on what you've done. It wasn't mm. evil, but we understand that it can't continue that way, you know, and so let's figure it out together. Um, and then a little bit of, you know, what might it actually look like so that they can do their own planning, you know, so they can go home and tell their family, this is this is the opportunity I'm going to try to go for, develop mm. myself for, whatever. Um, but I think that, you know, that, <laughs> I wouldn't pretend to understand politics, percent <laughs> 1%, 1% that you would, Rachel, but, but that basic kind of respect for what they've done and built needs to be the base layer for starting those conversations about the future. People aren't silly. You know, it really is as simple as that. So let's talk about the Fortescue, um, the very exciting Fortescue job. Look, there's been so much hype was watching the news (laughs) last night and um, saw Andrew Forrest and, you know, this time he was not with the Pope resolving the issues of modern slavery that was obviously in the past. Um, this time he was at COP26, you know, talking about Fortescue as a first mover into this sort of green green iron ore, green metals space and talking about the simple necessity of this transition in the way that you are. So you've jumped off from your Queensland government role and will be joining in his very significant endeavour. What are you actually going to do? <laughs> well... My job is to make those announcements true. So I'll be looking after Western Australia, uh, South Australia, and the Northern Territory. Mm-hmm. And Felicity will look after everything east, including New Zealand, which is apparently an eastern state. Um, <laughs> we, we, do, we do sometimes see it Colonial that way. Australia. <laughs> but um, but um, it is basically to translate all of that, you know, incredible intent and those incredible kind of stretch targets into a reality. 
Um, and I think, you know, the, the thing that was really appealing about that opportunity is maybe a couple things. One is, um, you know, Andrew Forrest speaks with the urgency that I feel. Mm-hmm. And there, that's actually the first time I'd heard the urgency that I feel reflected back in someone else's words, because we just, we actually just don't have time to mm-hmm. muck around. You know, code red the whole eight years until we've burned through our carbon budget um, kind of situation that we find ourselves in. So, so I think, you know, that urgency uh, requires being a little bit vulnerable because um, it shows that you care <laughs> mm. <laughs> and you know you know what we're driving towards. And the other the other thing was just those stretch targets. There's there's a lot of science behind. I'm sure there's a lot of science behind the targets and the announcements that have been made. There's a lot of you know intelligence behind the contracts that are being written and all of that stuff. And yet, I think we'd be kidding ourselves if we said we know exactly how we're going to get there. But I don't think that can stop us from starting. You know that that the fact that we have gone out and said you know scope one and two emissions. So all the direct emissions from Fortescue's current operations in the Pilbara will be at net zero by 2030. That's a billion that liters worth of diesel gone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, some things it's really clear how you can do that. You can swap out the energy for renewable energy. Happy days. But when it comes to the mining trucks, the mobile plant, the trains, the ports, the, <laughs> the boats, you know there will be parts of there will be parts of that target where. Um, it's just a matter of building and implementing the solution. Um, and there will be parts of that target where we genuinely need to invent the solution. But I think again, and again, this is a, a parallel that I heard very clearly in you know, Mr. Forrest talking about those targets is once he's proven that you can do it, everyone else will have to, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> once, once you've got that proof case that it's actually worked, then nobody has an excuse not to follow suit. Um, and then, of course, you know, the, the far more kind of globally impactful target is, is the one that he set for 2040, which is the scope three emissions at net zero. And that means all of the steel that's ultimately mm. made out of that has to iron be green steel too. has to be green steel as well. Um, and, and that's whether it occurs, you know, whether the steel making occurs in Australia or, you know, China or yeah, anywhere else. Or is. And so, you know, that's the world changing stuff because mm. making steel contributes almost a tenth of our global emissions. Mm. And so again, if you can prove that that's possible, that's a huge, that's more than any single country actually will contribute towards towards net zero for the world. You know, Australia is having this debate about the, um, I won't call it a roadmap because that's too strong a word, but about the limited flesh which the government put on the bones around its commitment to net zero by 2050. And one of the real critiques that's been made of that is that it's a bit pie in the sky. It's a bit sort of kicking the problem down the road in that the government, you know, which for political reasons doesn't want to adopt a pricing mechanism, has instead said, oh, well, we'll, we'll get to net zero by 2050. We'll do it through technology, not taxes. And it has specifically been criticised for quite overtly saying, oh, well, we know that some of that technology doesn't exist yet, but we think it'll all be sweet. Um, and I, th- I think there's been a very, you know, in my view, a sort of not unreasonable criticism that, you know, there's sort of a fair bit of wallpaper over some pretty big cracks. But you sound pretty optimistic about <laughs> the, I mean, I, I won't, it's a bit rude to ask you to comment specifically on on the mm. government's roadmap, but, you know, what you are saying is, in lots of cases, what we need to do is prove up that technology. And you do sound reasonably optimistic about the capacity to do that when applied to the Fortescue Challenge, mm. if not the national challenge. 
Is that a fair assessment? It is. I mean, I think this has been a dinner table debate actually for the last few weeks. Does it matter whether Australia comes out and says that we're committing to net zero by 2050? Not really. And frankly, no. No, no it doesn't. No, it so, just matters, it matters a great so. deal for domestic. Well, for quite legitimate well, domestic politics reasons, in my view, and it means that. Yes. We're, it, sorry, I, I, now I'm now I'm giving you the answer. <laughs> How about I listen to you? I, I think it matters that we are, you know, finally putting to bed some of the abject madness that has held us back for a period of time. How much credit you should get mm. for, you know, putting your sort of lunatic uncles in the cupboard when they're your lunatic uncles? I don't really know, but sorry, how about I go back to your dinner well, table, not mine? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think maybe two two points here. One, one is, like we were talking about earlier, private enterprise is going to drive this and has been driving it, right? And it, it starts with your insurance companies having the aha moment that stuff's not going to be insurable mm. if the weather keeps on getting more extreme. Which right? they've been having for 15 years. We've only just seen the beginning of it yeah. you know, manifesting here, but actually once you've emitted that CO2, it's in the atmosphere for thousands of years. Mm. It's not going to get better. It's mm. only going to get worse with every year that goes past. You can't insure it. Okay, if you can't insure it, you can't finance it. If you can't finance it, right? And That's so right. you've kind of got this trickle down from it started with the insurance companies. It went to, you know, BlackRock, your big, your big mm. investors. It's gone from there into your boardrooms. It's gone from there into the big publicly held companies, hence your BHP, even your Rio is, is catching up. And so that dynamic is there. Nothing's going to make that go away now, right? And so the decarbonization of our economy will happen because private enterprise wants to remain relevant in a decarbonizing world. And so it's like, will that happen quite quickly enough? Would that get us to net zero anyway or not? I almost don't care. It's, it's going to be a pretty steep trajectory. It's probably going to be steeper than the targets that we've set um, as interim targets for 2030 or 2035, mm-hmm. because that imperative is so strongly felt by the people who are actually spending the capital. The one footnote, and it's it's a really important one, so maybe, maybe footnote's not fair, but the one thing that you know does really matter from setting a 2050 target, you know, beside the statement of intent, besides the kind of um, crystallization or um, agreement, you know, that, that it sort of symbolizes, is one. It's embarrassing not to have one. Mm. It's embarrassing because of the moral imperative to look after the world and those less fortunate in it who are going to suffer because of what we've done. We won't mm. suffer as much as they will. But also, I think, you know, if you think about that uh, counterfactual, we were talking about the the economic base case. If we don't do anything to replace the fossil fuel and, and other carbon-based industries that we have, it's a pretty dim future. Well, to get the maximum upside, and there specifically I'm thinking in terms of jobs for Australians, we have to be not just good at decarbonizing our own economy, but globally competitive in a decarbonized world. Yep. And that's especially true if you're thinking of something like green hydrogen, where it's going to be a globally traded commodity. There might be a little bit of a premium for it in the beginning, but we mm. all know that green hydrogen is going to be the cheapest and the only sustainable form of hydrogen in the longer term. And so you know, we've got to be pretty sharp. We've mm. got to be pretty focused on that global competitiveness if we want to not just decarbonize our own economy, but actually potentially create whole new exports, whether it is green hydrogen, whether it is green steel, ammonia, whatever whatever form it takes, green zinc from Queensland. Mm. And so to be globally competitive as a country, not just BHP doing their absolute best to be, you know, yeah. or, or, or Fortescue for that matter, doing their absolute best to, to export globally competitive green steel, 
we have to have an eye on that from the beginning, and especially for that really big, really expensive shared infrastructure, whether it's pipelines, transmission lines, port upgrades, whatever, that line of sight to actually here is the economy that we want in 2050. Here's the economy we think we can have in 2050 with the incredible resources that we've got. What are the investments that we're going to take as a country to get us there? That's where 2050 net zero really matters. Because mm. until you have the courage to say, this is what that this economy is going to look like. Yeah. And here's the shared infrastructure that we need. And we're talking billions and billions and billions of dollars. You know, We um, at CleanCo did a bit of work that said, you know, it's something like $100 billion to get Queensland to net zero. Wow. And that's before you think about big export projects for hydrogen or anything else. That's just to decarbonize our own economy. Although, so it's kind to of, be you fair, know, you know, $100 billion for Queensland is not two years of the state budget. You know, the federal government accumulated an extra um, trillion dollars in debt in managing the COVID response mm-hmm. in 12 months. I mean, it's not, it's not, an, it's not, it's, it's not <laughs> yeah. an inconsiderable right. sum, yep. um, you know, certainly, you know, someone who's been involved in the running of, of the state's finances, you know, when someone comes along and says it's a hundred billion bucks, Spread out you know, you don't, you don't, um, <laughs> uh, you do raise an eyebrow, mm. but it's not one, it's not an unrealistically unmanageable explode your brain kind of number. It is absolutely in the realm of stuff that can be done. That's right, yeah. Um, I wish I could remember it off the top of my head and I'm going to struggle now. Um, My recollection was that the cost of damage to the state's infrastructure, basically roads, as a result of the summer of natural disasters we had when I was transport and then finance minister, was between five and ten billion dollars, mm. and that was you know largely paid for by the federal government through natural disaster recovery arrangements. But you know it was pretty fair whack. Mm. Um, now there was debate at the time about is this climate change? You know, there's no doubt as time goes by that we can have a greater level of certainty that the extreme weather that comes our way is directly related to the effects of climate change. And mm. if you can spend that kind of money, and the figure might have been more. I'm sorry, I can't remember, but if it was five or ten, it might have been more out of, you know, one really wet summer than a hundred over a period of time to build the necessary infrastructure to manage a transition mm. becomes a pretty viable thing to do. It does, yeah. Um, that's interesting. And and it's actually mm. smaller than I thought it would be. Well, I'm I'm under I'm probably underagging it. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's also, remember, it's the cheapest form of power. So it's economically beneficial. That's right. It's no recurrent cost. That's right. You just build it. That's correct. Well, you'll have to well, rebuild it, of course, gotta, at the end of yeah. it. That's right. But but I, I think... You don't have to fuel it. No, that's right. That's right. And and even thinking at that scale, I mean, I, I think the challenge about the net zero debate, do we do we commit or do we not commit, mm. is that it, it's taken up all of the airtime when in fact what's really interesting is how are we going to get there in a way that not just protects our economy and minimizes the cost because we know that that needs a plan <laughs> and, mm. and targets and all of that, but actually unlocks that potential growth of manufacturing or growth of value-added exports that only will come if we can do it not just efficiently, but globally competitively. Mm. And so that's the net zero debate, I think, is does it really matter? <laughs> you know, when, when all Hopefully of the states have made their, <laughs> but, but, but the signaling and the, and the 
you know, now the expectation that we will figure out a roadmap for how we're going to get there. And it may be that the last 5% we don't know or 10% we don't know because the technology hasn't been invented yet. Although there's orders of magnitude more focus from the smartest people in the world on it now than there was 10 years ago, mm. of course. So my optimism about finding a, a solution there is is high as well. But it's that how's the first 80% going to look? We know that. It's knowable. <laughs> you know, it just, yeah. it just requires planning out. Look, and I have to say, you know, your description does put some optimism in my heart. Some years ago, I, after I'd uh, been bumped out, I always struggle with how to describe this, after I'd left politics, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I spent some time living in Ireland, which is where my ancestors by and large came from. Um, the thing that living in Ireland made me think about Australia is that we in this country, you know, we know that we've kind of got to sing for our supper, you know. As you said, there's hardly anyone here. We've got a whole continent. So there is this sort of national discussion in a way in Australia that there is not in Europe about what is your place in the world, what do we contribute, what's next. Mm. And... I think that's the best of Australia. You know, we, we, we in Australia have transitioned our economy several times in the past. Yes. Yep. Um, we have gone from kind of being a convict settlement to being entirely an agricultural exporter to being a minerals exporter and being a manufacturing and services and, and place of innovation. Mm. You know, agriculture has has collapsed as a proportion of Australian exports over a period of time. So there's going to be a next thing. There's been a next thing before. Mm. And, you know, what I find heartening about the work that you do and the way that you describe it is, A, that it's the inescapable science that drives your curiosity but B, that that curiosity naturally drives you to what does the country need to do to be competitive in a changed world? Mm. And I think if we see, you know, both the science and the technology in that light, it does indeed give us cause for, for great optimism. Mm. Hope. So with that, it's been a total joy to, to chat to you. Likewise. We'll totally wish you all the best in your, um, in your new gig. This has been a tremendously interesting conversation and um, good luck with resolving this critical problem. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on Deep North, a podcast by the McKell Institute Queensland. My name's Rachel Nolan. Our producer is Charles Pigeon. To find out more about what we do, follow us on Twitter at McKell Institute. And if you enjoyed the show and you care about serious, deeper analysis of Queensland politics, please like and review Deep North to help spread the word.